It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and if I had the super-strong, super-fast body of an immortal android, forget the hot assistant, I'd walk onto the Washington Senators and finally take the pennant from those damn Yankees. I'm joined once again on this episode by New York Times bestselling author David Mack, who has written over 30 Star Trek novels, short stories, and novellas, as well as the Deep Space Nine episodes Starship Down and It's Only a Paper Moon. Dave also writes non-Trek fiction. His latest novel, The Midnight Front, is the first entry in the Dark Arts series and explores the secret history of the Allies using magic and harnessing demons to fight Nazi sorcerers in World War II. David, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. It is good to have you back on board. Today we'll be talking about The Schizoid Man, the sixth episode of the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Great TV shows are often like great parties in that they often need time to really get going, and they're sometimes improved by the arrival of certain guests and the departure of others. When Star Trek The Next Generation premiered in the fall of 1987, it was more than a few canapes short of a soiree, with diehard fans angry at the lack of Kirk, Spock, and the original cast, and reviewers calling it boring and derivative. A looming writer's strike and heavy staff turnover made the show a battlefield behind the scenes, and at the center of it all was the host, Gene Roddenberry, the man whose vision had birthed and sustained the franchise, but a man whose reluctance to let the world he'd created change with the times, both in the real world and in the world of television production, threatened to end the party before it could even take off. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Dave, you were last on board almost a year ago, and at that time, I think off the air, we were talking about the still-to-be-released Star Trek Discovery. Uh, since that time, Star Trek Discovery has premiered. There's mm-hmm. uh, one episode left to air as we record this. Uh, your novel, Desperate Hours, has come out. Uh, Dayton Ward's second Discovery novel, Drastic Measures, is out this week. A third novel by James Swallow, Fear Itself, is set to come out in June. And Discovery is sitting at 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the show is already in production for a second season. I think it's safe to say that Star Trek Discovery is a huge success. I think it's a pretty big hit. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm not privy to the subscription numbers of CBS all access. And in the end, that's really going to be the chief metric by which CBS is going to judge the success of the show is how well did it drive subscriptions to the all access streaming service? Yeah. Worldwide, they have their partnership with Netflix. So, uh, Star Trek discovery is available to Netflix subscribers pretty much everywhere in the world, except North America. (laughs) Right. Uh, my hope is that uh, when the second season is ready to go on, perhaps Netflix will get a second run uh, deal where they will be able to air the first season of Discovery while CBS All Access has the brand new second season. And in that way, in North America, those who've been holding out or didn't want to sign up for another service uh, maybe could get a chance to see it on their Netflix subscription, get hooked, and then take the plunge and join CBS All Access. 
Um, but I don't know if that's going to happen. I think that would be a great idea, but nobody listens to me. You know, <laughs> what do I know? I'm listening. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, yeah, it's it, it seems to be, have been going well. I know that there's a you know obviously it's a, a controversial show. It has sparked quite a bit of heated discussion mm. about matters such as canon, continuity, visual aesthetics. When is it time to let go of visual aesthetics? Is it ever time? <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, because Star Trek has a particularly strange history in that regard of having done flashback episodes and crossover episodes that very faithfully recreated the aesthetic of the old series right. rather than try to update the look. Uh, and so that there was always the sense of, yes, they look different, but they were all part of the same continuity. And then Discovery comes along and starts throwing curveballs in terms of the visual aesthetic of an era. And now fans are forced to sort of accept that, okay, we have to wrap our brains around the fact that the look of what we're seeing on screen has changed. We just have to pretend this is what it was all along. Right. So it's, uh, it's interesting watching fandom go through its spasms of adjustment uh, <laughs> as it struggles to deal with this. Um, and it's always been it's it's always been a conflict, or it's that sort of thing where you you love the um, it's the passion of the fans that has kept this thing going, but it's also that passion uh, for the old version of the series and that like um, persnicketiness about continuity that holds it back. I think sometimes as well, like they mm -hmm. took entire episodes to explain why the Klingons had bumpy foreheads or smooth foreheads in Enterprise when up to that point, people just kind of like, eh, all right, we just accept it. Uh, it's well, just a visual change. Yeah, and also in Trials and Tribulations, the TNG... <laughs> it's uh, just a joke uh, sorry, Right, the DS9 TOS crossover with Trouble with Tribbles, they have the observation, they have Bashir, you know, say, those are Klingons. <laughs> and they all look at Worf, and Worf simply passes it off with, we do not speak of it with outsiders. <laughs> right. And that's it. That's yeah. the whole thing. It's a great gag. It keeps the mystery. It, 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 it's a practice in TV writing called lampshading. Right. Where you know that if you don't address it in some way, somebody's going to call you on it. But you also don't want to waste a whole bunch of valuable story time and screen time on something that's actually not germane to the primary story. Right. So you lampshade it. You deliberately call attention to it in a self-referential and mocking way. And then you, so that the, the readers and the viewers know, okay, they're aware of this. They got a laugh out of me for it, but they're not dealing with it at this time. Right. We move on. Yeah. That's called lampshading. <laughs> I wonder, uh, I, I think that it's, it's best on Discovery uh, that they have. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm looking, I'm trying to think of like a specific moment that they've lampshaded things. And I don't think they really have. I think they've played it sort of straight. And they're like, I mean, what do you really want? Do you want like ply, plywood sets and things like that? Like, we want to deliver a modern aesthetic and a cool looking sci fi show. And I hope that you can accept that. And then we can find canon reasons why these guys had you know, multicolored t shirts and these guys are wearing jumpsuits. But I mean, isn't well, this what you want? I mean, I did that in my book. Yeah, right. So, uh, but yeah, they haven't really needed to lampshade anything, at least not too explicitly. Right. They played it pretty straight, and uh, they've obviously got one or two curveballs left in this weekend's finale episode. So I won't spoil anything there, but I'm sure <laughs> that the ending of uh, the episode will definitely have fans talking for the next year or so until they get new episodes. Sure. 
Well, that's what we're looking forward to. One of the other things that we were talking about was, and this was early, of course, in the development, um, the, the departure of Brian Fuller uh, as the executive producer of the show. And uh, he had since moved on to um, work on American Gods and Amazing Stories, two shows that he has also um, departed from at this point. Yeah. And so I guess I, do, I still don't know exactly how the show changed without his continued involvement. But as I've been watching the show, I mean, it's been so uh, tightly plotted and clean in its storytelling for the most part that I, I have to commend the production for finding their own way with what had been established already before he left. Yeah, he laid down a blueprint for them. In some respects, he hamstrung them. He you know, limited their ability to change direction after his departure. Interesting. So they were obligated to continue the path that he had charted. Uh-huh. And I think that, you know, there was a little bit of a shaky start between the first two episodes and the third episode as they had to transition from the pilot that yeah. they had been left with and had to adapt and revise on the fly to the third episode, which is where the new regime, as we'll call them, took over mm-hmm. and had to manage the transition from Fuller's pilot to the series they were going to run week to week. And as a result, they sometimes were in-house referred to episode three as the second pilot. Sure. Okay. I can see that. Because they had to reestablish the rules of the show. The The first two episodes function almost as prequel yeah, or as the finale to the USS Shenjo series that we never got. <laughs> right. Yeah. And episode three, in some respects, serves as the true launch point of what is discovery. Yeah. Well, uh, shaky starts is one thing that I want to talk about today. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, Speaking of not shaky starts, firm starts, let's talk about your new book, The Midnight Front. Uh, Oh, sure. You're never supposed to ask a writer where their ideas come from, but I think I'm clear to ask you in this instance where the inspiration for the world of the dark arts arose from. Well... The inspiration for the magic system, which involves summoning demons and controlling them and yoking them, etc., came from uh, real black magic, Renaissance-era black magic. And my specific inspiration for how to treat that in prose came from a novel published 50 years ago, Black Easter by James Blish. And it was a novel that I read as a teenager It's not a very action-heavy novel. It's more philosophical and scholarly in many regards. Mm -hmm. But it treats the subject of black magic and demons and demonology in a very serious, almost scientifically rigorous manner. Mm -hmm. And the result of treating it in this way makes it seem all the more real and therefore all the more terrifying when the story does finally kick into gear. Sure. So I was always fascinated and terrified by that novel and i always loved that particular take on magic going back to the old grimoires the old uh you know books of magic that have been sitting around in the christian tradition since around the 13th or 14th century right um and i liked it always a little bit better than say the rather twee magic systems of you know the chosen one can simply wield magic and simply has to get in touch with their feelings. Right. (laughs) You know, all that kind of happy horse shit. So I I always liked the system of magic. And then the idea of taking it into a world war two setting happened as I was working on an earlier version of the dark arts series, uh, first book, my original concept had been to do it as a near future concept that blended high tech, almost cyberpunk types, uh, technology with black magic. But I realized that I kept needing to do more of the world building to establish 
the magic and where did the magic users come from and why do they live the way they do? Mm-hmm. And I had this villain whose backstory was intimately tied to you know his role with the Nazis in World War II, and he was an evil that we thought vanquished, and now he's back, and yet it was very Voldemortish, I guess. <laughs> um, and the problem was, the more time I spent working on that book, the more the villain and his World War II backstory began to take over the narrative. It just started to take up more and more sections, more and more scenes, and at some point, I just realized my brain really wants to write this World War II novel and not this cyberpunk novel with magic. And I was lamenting this fact because I had spent all this time researching and plotting and planning and developing world building and everything. And I was going to have to throw it all out to start all over in World War II. But at some point I just bit the bullet and said, okay, that's what this book needs to be. Then that's what it's going to (laughs) be. So, so I combined World War II, which in many respects is the pivotal moment in human history, at least in the 20th century, sure. with this black magic concept. And I made it into secret history, not alt history. So the notion is that this secret war of black magic behind the scenes took place between and behind the real history that we know and live in. Right, right. Um, it's not like an alternate history where you know Hitler won or something else no. like that. Yeah, no, I'm obligated. I obligated myself to respect the facts of real history. I don't change the details of major events. Uh, for instance, when I was writing a sequence of the book, a critical sequence of the book takes place on D-Day. I researched the heck out of it because I know there are military historians who would love to catch me on every little <laughs> yeah, inconsistency. Right. right. So I made sure that I know I knew the numbers of which landing boats, which LCA, which Higgins boats deployed from which ships with which units in them. I made sure that if my character was with the second Rangers, that he deployed from the right ship in a boat that had the right number on it. Right. Uh, I made sure that the lieutenant in his boat was a real lieutenant who was actually there on D-Day. Okay. So he's actually got a commanding officer who was a real CO. Uh, on D-Day, I made sure that the name of the lieutenant who I established got to this particular destination first is actually the guy who got there first. Okay. And little details like that. And I, I went to primary sources. And, um, and and so it was important, for instance, not to whitewash history. There are accounts of moments from the Holocaust. There's the Allied firebombing of Dresden. Yeah. Uh, and numerous other events throughout the book which are taken from real history and presented as faithfully and as accurately as I could. Well, you go from writing a Trek novels where you have to satisfy fans' uh, love of continuity and their uh, love of the details into World War II, which is probably just as bad, if not worse, yeah. as far as the fans knowing about it. But uh, at least I had the skill set. I mean, sure, you know, yeah. working, spending 15, 16 years writing tie-in novels and you get used to doing tons of research and backing up everything you do with citations and... Uh, matching up to real history or at the very least to continuity and canon. Yeah. When you have to do it with real history, I imagine that if I did not have this prior experience uh, and ability to, to quickly pivot when I find the facts don't support what I want to do yeah. story-wise, I imagine it would have been a much more frustrating experience. Were there any particular reference works or like documentaries you looked at to get a feel of the period? Well, 
I want. I looked at uh, the movie The Longest Day, which sure. was this like three hour, four hour film about uh, D Day, starring John Wayne and many, many other people. Uh, but most of my research was done with primary book sources. Uh, Rangers Lead the Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did research at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Went to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. I picked up a book on soldier slang across the decades so that I could distinguish between period-specific jargon of different members of different services in different wars. So I, for instance, I wanted to make sure that my Army Rangers on D-Day were not using slang that should have been specific only to Navy men of the Vietnam era, let's sure. say. Right, yeah. <laughs> so I made sure to go through the period-specific uh, jargon and lingo and I made sure that, you know, the soldiers would not be using slang or jargon that was not correct to the period. Um, and then beyond that, for the magic, I had the reference works, um, you know, the Lemigeton, which is also known as the Clavicula, Salomonis Regis, the Lesser Key of Solomon. Mm-hmm. I had the Sworn Book of Honorius. I had Arthur Edward Waite's The Book of Black Magic and of Pax. Uh, and these were all great primary sources about black magic and rituals, ceremonial magic, the descending hierarchy of hell. Uh, so I pulled all of my magic terminology uh, from Waite's book for the most part. Okay. And then I pulled rituals from his book, uh, Honorius, uh, and from uh, The Lesser Key. So Okay. Well, I, uh, I love World War II stories and things like Band of Brothers, so if Amazing Stories doesn't work out for Spielberg and he wants to double back to World War II, I'd love to see a Midnight Front series on Apple TV or elsewhere. Hey, I would love to see it on HBO or Netflix sure. or Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime's been doing great with Man in the High Castle. Yeah, right. I think this would be a great partner series for that. Okay, okay, I can see that. And then, you know, only the first season would be World War II. The notion of the series, uh, the Dark Arts series, is that with each book, we jump to a different era of geopolitical history and we write a different style of book so the first book spans six years of war in europe during world war ii Mm -hmm. the second book covers about 50 some odd days at the beginning of 1954 and it's a cold war spy thriller okay and i'm currently plotting book three uh which is called the shadow commission and i'm trying to plot that so that it transpires over just a few days immediately after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And it's supposed to be kind of a tense, paranoid conspiracy piece. One of those books uh, slated to come out. The second book is written. That's the Iron Codex. Okay. And assuming there are no major hiccups during editing, I'm hoping it will be out roughly a year from now, around the end of January 2019. And as long as I stay on schedule and can get book three done uh, by early summer, I should be on track to uh, have book three out uh, by the beginning of 2020. Okay. Do you work, uh, are you able to work simultaneously on books or do you kind of focus on uh, one project and then move on to another? I write one book at a time. Okay. Uh, right now, the second book is in editing at tour. So my editor is reading through it, compiling notes. I'm receiving notes from beta readers, my editor, my agent, and I'm filing all that away while I work on the plot for book three. I see. So I can really only focus writing-wise on one thing at a time. Okay. When the notes all come back from my editor, and it's time for me to start the rewrite and revisions on book two, I'll put book three down for a while. I will 
focused explicitly on the rewrites for book two until they're done, until my editor is satisfied. And when that's done and the book goes to production, then I will return to book three and put all of my attention on that until it is finished. Well, I'm looking forward to those uh, next two books. As am I. Why did you choose this specific episode, The Schizoid Man, to talk about today? The reason I chose it uh, was partly because it is a bridging episode between the original series and its treatment of artificial intelligence, androids, uh, robotics, and synthetic life, mm. and how those subjects were treated in the uh, 24th century series of Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. And I thought it was particularly interesting in that uh, the schizoid man introduces this character of Ira Graves, who introduces himself to Data as, you know, his, uh, you know, supposedly grandfather. You know, he said, you know, I was uh, the father to, you know, Noonien Sung's work. Noonien Sung was my protege, student, whatever. And it's interesting in that this starts the pattern that is repeated throughout uh, TNG of Data discovering these members of his extended family, some of them synthetic, some of them human. Yeah. Uh, the first, of course, being uh, Lore, who he meets in Data Lore, season one. Mm -hmm. And then we have Dr. Ira Graves, who introduces himself as Grandpa. <laughs> right. it's, it's not till season four that we meet uh, Dr. Noonien Sung for the first time. Uh, and then we have, uh, let's see... Uh, also, in third season before that, Data created his daughter, Lol. And then in the seventh season uh, episode, uh, Inheritance, Data meets Juliana Tainer, who introduces herself as his mother. Right. And uh, then, of course, there's a whole other story going on with Juliana Tainer in that she, although she thinks she's human, uh, is actually, spoiler alert, uh, children, uh, <laughs> Juliana Tainer is actually a Sung-type android built in the likeness of a woman who was human, who was the lover and scientific partner of Nuni and Sung, and he transferred her consciousness into the Sung-type android, which is fascinating because that's exactly what Ira Graves does in this episode. Right, right. And, and Ira Graves, being the mentor of Sung, uh, you can imagine that this is partly where Sung, A, got the idea and B, maybe got his first exposure to the technology, which harkens back to the original series episode, What Are Little Girls Made Of? For me, I'm almost curious about how Data's positronic brain works. I mean, it's a concept that's borrowed from Asimov, and we never really find out the workings, mostly because there probably aren't really any workings uh, mechanically. But if it's if he has a psychology and a brain structure, uh, you know, in a neural net similar to a human's, and why... You're able to do things like transmit your consciousness into, you know, data if you're Ira Graves or transmit uh, Juliana's consciousness into a Sung-type android. I mean, there's clearly some similarity in the human brain and the positronic brain. Well, I think that that was mentioned in a number of episodes and possibly also in some of the feature films that Sung was attempting to replicate the sometimes chaotic, uh, unpredictable nature of synaptic connection right. that happens in a biological brain, but in a positronic matrix. Sure. But but it is interesting, This uh, one of the things established in this episode, originally Graves simply meant to transfer the sum of his knowledge and experience into the computer uh, that he had at his laboratory. 
Then he sees the possibility with data in his presence of changing his plan on the fly and putting his whole consciousness into data. And what this implies, uh, particularly when you look at the ending of the episode, when they extract uh, Graves or when Graves, I think out of guilt, surrenders his hold on data and uploads himself into the enterprise computer uh, in a manner similar to what he meant to do at the beginning. The part of him that is now in the computer is just raw data. There's no actual personality. And it implies in a certain respect that a positronic brain, because of its innate consciousness and some other innate quality can be a repository for a soul in the way that most computers in the 24th century era cannot. Right. And we also get the added sort of hint that like whenever data uh, is experiencing emotions due to his chip or even when like he creates lol and she develops emotions, Troy mm-hmm. seems to be able to sense them empathically, which I'm not really sure how that works exactly, but it does seem to suggest that, yeah, something more is going on at that point. You know, a soul is present. That he's more than a machine. Yeah, exactly. And you're right, that happens here when she senses the burning jealousy, as she describes it, coming off of Ira Graves in Data's body. Uh, and that's an interesting notion in that it implies, once again, that it is not Data's physical matrix that is incapable of emotion. It is something about his programming, something about the way that his personality and soul was incepted that denied him uh, at least standard human emotions at the beginning of his life. Right. Uh, the whole notion of the emotion chip, one has to wonder if it's m- less about the hardware of the chip itself and more about the firmware that came with it. Interesting. Or just the idea that uh, Data's neural net would need to develop to the point, just like a human needs to develop, where he mm-hmm. can then you know, access and, and deal with these emotions responsibly. What I would have always loved to have seen would have been an episode had the show continued or if they had had time to deal with it in a movie. I believe it was in either Generations or some other thing where they had Data had taken out his emotion chip, I guess after Descent. And uh, it was damaged. They said, I would have loved to have had them find out that the emotion chip was a placebo, that it was okay. simply there to help data, you know, deal with the, uh, the it's more of an interrupt chip that, uh, you know, it's there to help data turn them off when he needs to turn them off. I would have loved to have found out that it was simply a matter of Sung giving data a physical buffer uh to protect him as he evolves into emotional intelligence. Right. <laughs> the chip is just merely like a switch, basically, that just, yeah, now you can access that. That's fine. Right. Or or now you can turn it off, you know, but the fact that you, I would love to have had him find out he doesn't actually need the chip to have emotions. Sure, it was inside of him the entire time. <laughs> it was all, yeah, it's very uh, Wizard of Oz, which, of course, again, fun reference, that brings us back to the beginning of the episode, Yeah, where Ira Graves is whistling... Uh, if I only had a heart, the tune of the Tin Woodsman. Right. Uh, when he you know sees that data has come, and this is peculiarly ironic and maybe even a little bit cruel, because the song was originally meant to express the Tin Woodsman's desire to feel human emotions and become flesh, and by hijacking Data's body, Graves not only sacrifices what little empathy or heart, as one might say, he might previously have possessed, he has abandoned flesh for a synthetic form, right. the exact opposite of the Tin Woodsman's <laughs> desire in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. 
And it's also ironic uh, is the writer's decisions to name the man Graves when his story is about a man striving to cheat the Grim Reaper. Right, from Graves' world, yeah. Right. Um, I, I always think that it's interesting that Data, with his amazing memory capacity and his researching uh, constantly of, like, human history, is surprised by Pinocchio, by the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> like, does he know Pygmalion? Like, you think the first thing he would do would be researching all these myths and stories about uh, artificial creatures striving to be human. Yeah, you would think that that would have been high on his list, but... <laughs> You know, I guess that cheats the uh, writers of the opportunity to school their cinematically illiterate audience. (laughs) That's true. Well, we are talking about The Schizoid Man, the sixth episode of the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It first aired on the 23rd of January in 1989, and the teleplay for this episode was by Tracy Torme, who was a writer and executive story editor for the show's first two seasons. Uh, We've talked about Torme previously on the show when we covered the episode Conspiracy and how he was something of a loose cannon among the early TNG writing staff. And he did not get along with the then-showrunner Maurice Hurley. And something that I think defines his scripts, um, like The Big Goodbye or Conspiracy or uh, The Royale or Manhunt, is that they feel... um, Less specifically to me like a like a Trek show and more like a, a like a general sci-fi type show that happens to be set on a spaceship. Like he often <laughs> explores things that are not necessarily, hey, what's Kirk or Spock up to today? You know, he's bringing these outside elements in. I know that Maurice Hurley in some of his comments to uh, things like the TNG Companion and elsewhere was not very fond of this episode. I believe he <laughs> yeah. he actually described it with rather harsh terms. He sci-fi BS, I think, uh, was how he referred to it at one point. Wacky um, doodle, yeah, yeah. And uh, but Torme, it's also interesting to note his title. I was watching this episode, and he had an above the line title of creative consultant on right. this episode. Yeah. Uh, and that's interesting because executive story editor is what's called a below the line credit. Mm-hmm. It's a writing credit that appears in the end credits of the episode. Right. And it's for uh, basically executive story editor, uh, story editor and staff writer are the three sort of entry level jobs of writers in television. Uh, and they represent degrees of seniority and experience. And these are people who are paid week to week when they work on a series. And they're called below the line because their credits come at the end. For this, he seems to have moved to above the line, which indicates that he probably had rene- renegotiated something in his contract uh, and had become what's known as a writer uh, with other responsibilities or writer employed in other capacities by sure. Writers Guild jargon. <laughs> uh, so that's how he gets the creative consultant uh, title on this episode. And it makes one wonder what was going on behind the scenes and was that adding to the the friction? It's possible. Uh, I had read somewhere <clears throat> that he had had um, a relationship with Roddenberry that predated the series and that he had kind of a special... Uh, deal like he didn't have to do the day-to-day sort of work um, that you'd have to do in the uh, in the writer's room like he didn't have to help break stories and things like that Um, being friends with Roddenberry all he had to do was just deliver like three scripts a season and he was good and so he seemed to enjoy uh, privileges above uh, the normal writers at that time 
I imagine that would rankle some of the other people in the room who sure. are doing the work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is not a way to make friends in Hollywood. <laughs> right. Uh, the Let's story see. of the episode is by the writing team of Richard Manning and Hans Beimler. Both Manning and Beimler were co-producers in the third season of TNG. Uh, the pair worked on 10 episodes of The Next Generation and also wrote the teleplay for the Deep Space Nine second season episode, Paradise, along with Jeff King. This episode was directed by Les Landau, who I've mentioned so many times on this show, it's becoming a struggle to come up with new facts about him. Uh, he directed 58 episodes total between the four post-original series shows. And his first turn in the director's chair came when he took over production on the TNG episode Code of Honor from Russ Mayberry, who was apparently responsible for adding the African theme of the planet Ligon 2 in that episode, for which Roddenberry fired him. <laughs> I tell you, someday, someday... There's a claim to fame. Someday we're going to cover Code of Honor on this show, and it's going to be amazing. Oh, that's not going to be pretty. <laughs> not pretty at all. Another fun detail about this episode is it marks the only on-screen appearance to date of Dr. Salar, played by Susie Plaxon. That's correct. The and... character uh, later became a featured member of the cast of Peter David's acclaimed book series, Star Trek New Frontier. Yes. And she was mentioned... Many times, or you heard her name over the PA system in a number of episodes, but this is the only time she was ever seen on screen yes. in that uh, in that role. Which is strange, but of course they uh, must have loved Susie Plaxon because she came back to play Kalar. And Lady Q. Uh, that's correct, yes. Uh, the start date for this episode is 42437.5, and Dave, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Schizoid Man. The Enterprise receives a distress call. And as they send an away team to deal with that, the ship runs off to do something else. The distress call has been sent by a young woman named uh, something Briannon, and she's worried about her mentor, Ira Graves. Turns out Ira Graves is a big scientist. He's dying of something. He thinks that he's Data's grandfather because he mentored Data's creator. He transfers his consciousness into Data. Data starts acting weirdly. Uh, and nobody knows why, because they don't realize it's actually Ira Graves masquerading as Data. He's eventually confronted. Graves gives into his guilt over what he's done, and he surrenders possession of Data's body, puts his consciousness into the Enterprise computer, uh, but is reduced to just mere information, and Data is once again free to live his life. And we all have a laugh, and we fly off to the next adventure. Yes, uh, as we cringe through this episode full of misogyny, and uh, <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Oh, oh my lord! <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, anesthetize ourselves with some interesting facts from the memory banks for this episode. Um, the title of the episode came from an episode of The Prisoner, apparently, yes. as uh, Prisoner star Patrick McGowan was originally intended to play the role of Ira Graves, which would have been interesting. That would have been interesting. Uh, I'm not sure that he would have brought the same gruff uh, quality to it that sure. our guests did, but uh, all right. Yeah. Um, Data is, of course, trying out a beard in this episode, and in a scene, <laughs> in a scene cut from the script, uh, he would later try being bald in an attempt to emulate pa Captain Picard. And I have to wonder, how do these Soong-type androids work? Do they have, like, working hair follicles? Is that what's going on? Yeah, he's capable of growing out his hair. He can do everything. He can do everything. He can accelerate it. Or he may have actually simply tried on a synthetic beard, sure. uh, which I think would probably be more likely. Um, the capabilities of Soong-type androids are quite 
diverse and bizarre and seemed to have changed to suit the needs of whatever the episode was or whatever the writer needed as a gag at that moment. Right. Hence the line, I believe, in the TNG pilot about Data saying he can be used as a flotation device. <laughs> well, yeah, which they recycled for Insurrection, I think. Yes, uh, I believe they did. <laughs> I, I always wonder why, like... It's cooler, I think, if he can grow actual hair. But since there are always like pulling up little panels like under his uh, hair to plug like wires into him, like it's mm-hmm. clear that the actor is wearing a wig. So why doesn't he just detach his hair? Like he should have like Lego, like a Lego man, like removable hair. You would think, but what are you gonna do? <laughs> I mean, uh, apparently, you know, Soom-type androids, if you go by later episodes, can be programmed to mask their, uh, you know, mask the fact that they are androids. They can masquerade as biological creatures, sure. as Juliana Tainer did sure. quite effectively in Inheritance. Yeah. And I'd have to, I don't, I'm not sure if Troy mentions it in that episode, but I'm sure that um, she must have not suspected that uh, Juliana was an android because she could detect emotion from her. That's correct. Uh, this episode, as you mentioned, introduces the character of Dr. Salar, uh, who, of course, this is the only, only appearance, but she goes on to what I think is like near ubiquity in tie-in media. Uh, it just seems like she's everywhere or always mentioned. Um, as somebody who used the character himself in Rise Like Lions, what is it about Dr. Salar that people seem to like and uh, authors want to keep using her? I think it's because Susie Plaxon is awesome. Well, I, I agree with that, absolutely. Uh, I think it's also just, you know, there's so few canon characters that you can, that that have not had been, uh, what am I trying to say here? There are so few canon characters that have not had other facts established about them or have been otherwise killed off, written off, uh, that they become like this blank slate onto which you can then project pretty much whatever you want, whatever you need. Sure. Um, And I think that Peter David did that to great effect uh, using Solar as one of the canon characters that helps connect his series to the greater continuity. Yeah. Uh, Cause he had a mix of these, you know, characters such as Salar and Robin Leffler who were drawn from canon. And then so connect new frontier to TNG very effectively. And then he combined them with his uh, original characters and it sort of elevates the original characters by having them interact with canon characters. Yeah. Uh, same thing with uh, Elizabeth Shelby, who was taken from Best of Both Worlds. So uh, I think that that's the uh, draw. But particularly with Solar, I think it's just that Vulcans are always cool. Susie Plaxon is cool. So you have Susie Plaxon as a Vulcan, and that's double cool. <laughs> and then Klingons are triple cool. So you know Susie Plaxon as Kalar is even cooler. Right. Uh, so... I mean, although I believe Salar appears in uh, some of my Mirror Universe books, I think she dies. Uh-oh. But I'm not. But I wasn't cruel enough to kill off Kalar. Not twice. <laughs> right. It's bad enough she di- had to die once in our universe. I wasn't going to kill her off in the other one. Yeah. Apparently, uh, and I, I just liked her too much. Well, yeah, she is cool. Apparently, Torme wanted to write a romance uh, between Worf and Doctor Salar uh, in future scripts, but of course, her being cast as Kalar and then actually entering into a romance with Worf kind of nixed that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's actually kind of an interesting thing in that the books picked up on that vibe uh, for a brief time many, many years ago. Uh, like right before my Destiny trilogy was published 10 years ago in 08, there was a string of books that introduced a Vulcan character, a counselor on the Enterprise named Talana, mm-hmm. and they sort of had this teasing of a romantic connection between her 
and Worf, or at the very least, she was attracted to Worf, but couldn't act on her feelings and couldn't admit to him that she was drawn to him. And so she clashed with him all the time and argued with him all the time. But in fact, it's because she really wanted him. Okay. Uh, so that was an interesting thing. I think that, you know, that whole notion of Vulcan Romulan pairing the ultra cool and the ultra hot, I think appeals to the writerly brain for its <laughs> cl- clash of opposites in style. Sure. Because I did it in the Vanguard series when I paired up, uh, the Vulcan character of, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, T'Prin, with uh, a, a Klingon, fem- a female Klingon agent named Lurkal, who had been surgically modified to appear human and was posing as Anna Sandejo, uh, a member of the diplomatic corps on Vanguard. Okay. Uh, so I had, once again, I went for the Klingon-Vulcan pairing, uh, this time lesbians. Sure. So, you know, because again, that's cool. Sure. Yeah. The rule of cool always wins out. The rule Rule of Cool always wins out. While we're talking about guest stars, this episode features, of course, W. Morgan Shepard as Ira Graves. Shepard would go on to play the one-eyed commandant of Rura Pente in Star Trek VI. He'd also appear on Voyager and also in an uncredited role as a Vulcan science minister in the 2009 Star Trek reboot film. Shepard's a Londoner, and he spent 12, he spent 12 years with the Royal Shakespeare Company, where he shared the stage with Patrick Stewart. Uh, he is, of course, the father of actor Mark Shepard, who people probably know from the Battlestar Galactica reboot and Supernatural. And the two actually played the same character 40 years apart in the Doctor Who episode, The Impossible Astronaut. And, of course, my favorite Mark Shepard roles, of course, are uh, from Leverage. Uh Uh, I love his character. He's the recurring foil of the team on Leverage. Right. And uh, he's terrific on Supernatural as the King of Hell, as Crowley. Yeah. Uh, So... Uh, w morgan shepherd has uh the father has a million stage tv and film credits but to me he'll always be blank reg from max headroom ha. yeah which is going back a little ways he's also one of those actors who i mean he's probably in his late late 50s when they're shooting this but he's he's kind of been old forever he's like mm-hmm. always been an old guy it's like max von Sydow was in uh the exorcist when he's probably in his early 40s but he's wearing old old man makeup and then he just continues to have these roles of gravitas until now he's an actually actually an old man you'd look back and you go when was that guy young was he just born like that yeah him and christopher lee yeah him too right yeah this episode also features Barbara Allen Woods as Kareen. Woods appeared mm-hmm. in many TV shows in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Uh, she was notably in the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids TV series, and she has a long-running role on the CW series One Tree Hill. Oh, what do you know? Yeah, so she did okay. Uh, the story of this episode is based on two separate premises. Um, Manning and uh, Baimler developed a story entitled Core Dump that introduced the character of Ira Graves and the whole transmitting of his consciousness into data. And Torme had a premise called uh, Menage that would explore the memories of the colonists from Omicron Theta that are contained in Data's neural net. And Data's actions and personality would sort of change as he manifested those memories. And once uh, Torme uh, was assigned the script, he decided to merge uh, those premises, uh, which... Maurice Hurley, as you guessed, did not like very much. <laughs> as you said, uh, he didn't like what it did to the character of Data. He felt that it damaged the character. He didn't like that Data was acting out of character, which I got news for him. Like, it's a good thing, I think, that he moved on from the series eventually, because as far as I can tell, Brett Spiner lives for the chance to put on a funny hat and make Data act weird. Yeah, that's pretty much what every actor dreams of. <laughs> yeah. 
a chance to do something and break out and steal the show. Yeah, and we returned to that a little bit in the, uh, or at least a chance for Brent Spiner to do that in the seventh season uh, episode, um, Masks. Of course, he gets to play a lot of different characters. But I always felt like this idea that he contains all the personalities, um, possibly, or at least the information, uh, possibly in a similar way to this transfer that uh, Ira Graves does, of the colonists from Omicron Theta is never really explored on screen all that much. Like we're reminded of it occasionally, but it just seems like a plot element or a character element that just kind of gets dropped as the series goes on and data becomes more interesting as himself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what they ever intended to do with it. I think maybe some of the books have tried to make use of it. Um, I think maybe it had been part of, an original uh, pitch for another episode that eventually got reworked in a different direction. Okay. But you're right. I don't think it ever really went anywhere. This notion of him having the memories of the colonists. I think in later episodes, it was established that the memories were given to him, not so much as a repository, not so that he could inhabit, say the personalities of these people, but to give him a foundation upon which to build ideas of ethics morality, uh, to build, you know, social understanding. It it was intended to give him uh, a step up in terms of being able to understand the nuances of, uh, interaction, uh, in a social setting. Okay. I see. So in the case of an Android, like, um, before, uh, who probably doesn't have that, you see that he is completely like socially inept and doesn't have that sort of basis of uh, human behavior to work off of. Right, and all of his body language is stiff and bird-like. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, Brett Spiner at it again. Um, Maurice Hurley, who we haven't really talked about much on the show before, is he's such an interesting figure to me. And I should mention before I go on that there's a great documentary by William Shatner that covers the time period that we're talking about, the early years of TNG, called Chaos mm-hmm. on the Bridge, which is available on streaming services. Maurice Hurley's a guy, who, he was working on cop shows like Miami Vice and The Equalizer, and he is brought in in the first season along with uh, Robert Lewin, another writer-producer who'd never done sci-fi. And eventually he ends up as the showrunner and head writer after Dorothy Fontana and uh, David Gerald leave the show. And this is after Fontana wrote the pilot and several other scripts, and Gerald wrote the series Bible, and he was a story editor for the show as well. Mm-hmm. And... The, he and uh, he and Lewin were brought on by a person that I haven't mentioned yet, who's sort of the snake in the garden figure of this story, uh, <laughs> Leonard Mazelish, Gene's lawyer, who involved himself in the day-to-day workings of the show far beyond his mandate as Gene's lawyer. I see. Do you know the stories of Mazelish? No, I am more uh, acquainted with the stories of Richard Arnold because I come from the tie-in side. I see. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, apparently, uh, this is all in the Chaos on the Bridge documentary, but he became kind of the go-between between Gene and the production. And so he would be delivering notes from Gene to the writers uh, that were in his handwriting. <laughs> and uh, he would be doing things like like hiring Maurice Hurley, who definitely kept the show going at a tumultuous time, but basically was hired to replace Fontana and Gerald after they were basically fed up with the show and ready to leave. And he actually got caught, uh, or at least it was rumored that he was doing rewrites on scripts and he's not a guild member. So that was a big deal. That's Uh, a no, no. Yeah. And, and uh, Gerald brought a lawsuit against the production uh, concerning that. And so you've got this show that is 
sort of flailing around in its first season. Um, they lost like 30 writers, I think, from the time that it started to the time that it ended. Yeah, and the writer strike began at the end of the first season. And in this documentary, they, um, I think it's Iris Stephen Bear talks about how they have this list, like this hall of fame in the um, staff washroom that has like the names of all the people who have come and gone and been like... Uh, I thought the uh, I thought the writer strike happened at the end of the second season, um, it, which is why we got Shades of Grey, that that terrible uh, right right uh, clip show as the season finale. Well, as far as I understand it, it was happening um, in '88, you know, in like the um, spring of '88, and so that would have been end of, that would have been end of first season, right? And so it delayed the production of uh, season two. So by the time they were actually able to ramp up, um, it was sort of rushed, and they didn't have enough scripts. And okay. that's what sort of led to Shades oh, of Grey. Oh, right. And Data's Day, I recall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, not Data's Day. The uh, uh, the one where Troy gets pregnant. The child. The child. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh. Not great. Um, and oh. The thing about Hurley is that he's got this real no-nonsense style uh, in running the show. And the, th- the most important thing to him is he's doggedly determined to hold up Gene's, you know, quote unquote, vision of the show and of the future, this humanist future where humans have no conflict with each other, which, of course, was a source of endless frustration for the writing staff. But his idea was this is, you know, wacky doodle sci fi, but I've hired to do a job. This is what I'm going to do. I think at one point, Gene himself had written a script and Hurley sent it back because it contained elements that weren't on brand for what Roddenberry said that he wanted for the show. Hmm. So he's this guy who it's like he's he's the guy that you want looking after your show and your vision, but he's not the guy that we need right now. Like this show is going to end up with Shades of Grey at the end of season two. Like this show needs help um, transitioning from this old style of sci-fi, what the original series was, into something new, what it eventually became. Hmm. So it's a mess. I mean, you've got a show that can't grow up because the guy that created it, or at least people working for him, uh, won't let it. And it isn't until Roddenberry is stepped back and Maurice Hurley is gone and Leonard Mazelish is gone. And you get people like Michael Piller, um, Ron Moore, Brandon Braga, Melinda Snodgrass. They come on board. Uh, Rick Berman and Piller are running the show. And you really see the show start to settle in and start acting like the TNG that we know. Uh, the stories around, become less... Around pl- season three, right? Right, yeah. The stories become less plot-driven. Uh, they're more character-focused. And we get examinations uh, of issues in that Trek style that go beyond, it's the Black Planet, or drugs yeah. are bad, Wesley eats something. Right. Is there a point that, I mean, b- besides just the start of season three that you would identify as Trek really coming into its own or, or sort of taking off? You're talking about Next Gen specifically? Yeah, yeah, Next Gen. Uh, I think it would probably be the episode Yesterday's Enterprise. Oh, okay, sure. I think that really marks the the third season transition point. Like, even the beginning of third season, uh, you know, it was definitely better than it had been in the first two seasons. Mm-hmm. And then third season, you could feel, okay, this is a little different. We're, we're going in a different direction now. This feels better, feels more sure-footed. And then that episode, uh, Yesterday's Enterprise, that hits, and suddenly everything goes up to 11. Yeah. Now suddenly you have an instant classic of an episode that shows you everything this show can really be. And I think that was the episode that for a lot of people, once that hit, TNG viewers, people whose faith had been rewarded because they had stuck with the show through the hard times, through the shaky times, they were rewarded with that, and they went, this is the show I've been waiting to love. Right, right. 
Yeah, I think that's the episode. I think that you uh, have a good pick there. I mean, episodes in season two, not great. <laughs> there are some flashes of goodness. Uh, Measure of a Man is still probably one of my favorite episodes, and I think shows uh, involving data it shows what the uh, show can do. But yeah, that's a pretty good signpost, I think, that says we're taking this seriously. Uh, we're, we're we're moving forward, and we're not going to be that show with the African planet from <laughs> from here on out. Yeah, I mean, Measure of a Man is a great episode, and again, that's an interesting one in that it connects back to what we're talking about here with the Schizoid Man, mm. in that this is also one of those early episodes that addresses the question of what are data's rights as a sentient being. Yeah. That's one of the arguments that Picard makes once they've determined that it is Ira Graves hijacking data's body. And Graves is trying to justify what he's done by saying, what does it matter? Data's not human. He's only viewing data as a machine that emulates human behavior, not as an actual thinking being that deserves to be treated with respect. Yeah. And Picard, even here, is making the argument he is a sentient thinking being and you do not have the right to take his life and steal it for yourself. Yeah. And it's only when this point is finally made to Graves and Graves sees that he's hurt Kareen by mistake because he doesn't know how to control this body, mm. that he's let his anger get away from him and he's you know injured multiple people. Uh, including Captain Picard and Chief Engineer LaForge. It's only at that point where he realizes that he has become unhinged, that he's willing to give up Data's body and, and go forward with his original plan. Yeah. But uh, it, it's interesting that you know this is one of those first episodes to raise the notion of, is Data capable of possessing a soul despite being synthetic? And the fact that Graves is able to exist in his form uh, but then is nothing more than raw information once he goes into the ship's computer actually supports Data's case. That's true, yeah. This plot to me feels very much like an original series episode or, or has the DNA of an original series episode. You've got the ship headed out to some planet to meet some guest star, uh, and then, you know, something happens. Um, there's always these planets that they're going to, especially in the original series. Where, where one person seems one, to live there. One, one mad scientist lives there, exactly. And he's got a wife or an assistant or something like that. And he's working on something that he, he probably shouldn't. In fact, the very first episode uh, that aired, the man trap is kind of like that. They're going out to see this scientist. And they all seem to be drawing off the paradigm of the uh, forbidden planet. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I, can I see think that. the forbidden, I mean, I, I think that that's one of those cases where forbidden planet has this unspoken legacy in science fiction. The notion of you go to some remote planet and there's at most a handful of people who live there or one mad scientist with a wife and an assistant and some crazy tech that has run amok and everything goes haywire and our heroes get caught in the middle of it. That The DNA of that idea, that meme, I think has propagated through all of science fiction for decades. That's fascinating. Is that... Is that just... Um... And I think it goes back to actually even farther than that. It may go all the way back to Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Is that just our in, innate fear of progress or of technology rearing its head? Could be. 
Could be, and maybe also our innate fear of hermits. <laughs> yeah, that, I can see that too. That's the problem. They need to make all these scientists just work on the moon or something like that. Don't let them go off to Graves well, well, World. Really, you know what they need is a, like a situation like at Pixar where they all work in like a nice little commune. <laughs> yeah, give them snacks. <laughs> there's some vegetable gardens. There's some ping pong tables. Maybe a little ski ball. Right. You know, there, there's a weekly karaoke and a, and a luau. I, I think that if these guys were kept a little happier and a little more social, you know, maybe had easier access to booze. Right, little you know, uh, the, golf carts they can drive around, yeah. The occasional wife-swapping party. I think that these guys <laughs> could mellow out a little bit and stop trying to destroy the galaxy. Well, I think they would definitely be down for the wife-swapping party. Um, these hypothetical scientists uh, will undoubtedly be men <laughs> because the franchise has years to go. Even at this point, it has years to go, I think, before it breaks out of the mold of sexism that kind of surrounds the show still. At this point, we're on the other side of second wave feminism. Uh, so all the questionable quips are given to this kind of dirty old man character. But I have to say the women in the story, they don't do much but stand around and deliver exposition. This was a painful episode to watch because of the fact that, I mean, you have to take into account, it's 30 years old. This was made 30 years ago. right? And even 30 years ago, Graves was meant to be seen as inappropriate. Right. He is described by the female characters as rude, as chauvinistic, but in, in, by today's standards, uh, he should be lynched, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, he, I mean, he's got a line that he means as a compliment. Women aren't people. They're women. Right. Now, he, he thinks that this is a compliment, but in fact, it's a remarkable display of misogyny. Because uh, he, he's trying to exempt women from his overall misanthropy. Yeah. But it, it, it just comes off. Also, the fact that he describes himself as a former lady killer, uh, which is a term that not only is it uh, misogynist, but it's loaded with privilege and implications of violence toward women. Yeah, it's not not fantastic. One would wonder uh, what would happen if Data was a woman, if Graves would even want to try this transfer. Oh, that would have been an interesting question. Uh, yeah, would he have even tried it? <laughs> oh, well, into the computer for me. Um, yeah, something... a shame, what a shame. <laughs> Never. Something that really kind of bugs me too is just beyond the kind of social implications is that it really limits the story in my point of view. I mean, we only get the point of uh, the story from the point of view of Graves and Kareen is never more than a sketch, really. And I have a lot of questions like, was she an intern? Was she getting college credit for this? I mean, she's just there to provide this motivation for Graves. And I think the story would get better if we saw things more from her side. I mean, there's a there's hints of suggestions around the episode that she has this promising life ahead of her that she's going mm -hmm. to return to now that, you know, Graves is dead. Uh, but he, like all older men who go after young women, is holding her back from that life. Yeah. I believe they state in the episode that her parents uh, were killed in some crash or something mm -hmm. and she was orphaned and he took her in, which gives us even a creepier vibe. Now we're into like creepy pseudo Woody yeah. Allen territory oh, boy. <laughs> where he's not really her adoptive father. He's not really, but he's sort of acting in loco parentis, but he's skeeving on her and he knows that he's too old for her. And then he's like, but if I could get that Android body, then I could be a sex machine and she would want me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> There's it's like, ah, oh, dude, this is wrong on so many levels. Yeah, it's not great. Um, there's probably no way that we get away with this in an 80s syndicated show. But if you could sort of like, I don't know, double down on these characters, uh, give them an actual life instead of like the sexist quips from him and the concern looks from her. If you saw touches of tenderness between them or the suggestion that 
of, of you know a fleshing out of their relationship that he sees her as a partner but she sees him as a father figure mm-hmm. uh, which is weird but it's you know that would create more of this dynamic so we understand ultimately why he's doing this and then why she really recoils from it because she's just sort of like oh is that what's going on oh and you know that she well, she, well, well she's pretty horrified once she realizes and what, that he's yeah and stolen when, data's body yeah and once he breaks her hand like that's not well that, does, that certainly doesn't help either i i think that again if we were if this episode were being done today they might try to find a more sympathetic motivation for graves they might have a made him less of an open misogynist and twit and i think that maybe they would have based his uh intentions like for instance if kareen were still young or you know still a child still vulnerable uh, and you know, Graves acting as her father doesn't think that Kareen will be safe in the galaxy without him. So if he were to do this as a father figure to say, she still needs me to protect her and then only find out later, no, she's far stronger than you thought she was. She doesn't actually need you and it's okay for you to move on. Yeah. Right. I think, I think that's maybe how a story like this would have been handled today, uh, because he is so, so unlikable in so many ways from the very beginning. He's, he's arrogant. He's a sexist. He's insulting to military officers. Uh, (laughs) and then he's skeeving on this young woman who's supposed to look up to him like a father. And he does all this because he wants to, to Mac on her. I mean, that's pretty nasty. Yeah. Uh, You can't really sympathize with any part of his motivation except for maybe cheating death. And even that seems uh, petty because of the way he's done it by effectively killing somebody else. Yeah. And he, I mean, the the entire episode is basically about him as well. Like, I like uh, your little pitch for sort of um, improving the episode. Even if we saw a thing, like we see that she is sort of in shock at what he's done, but it's not even her rejection necessarily of him that causes him to kind of flip out. Like he, he, he he gets that reaction from her where she recoils slightly in horror, but it's still more of him. Oh, I don't think I can do this. And, and Picard has to talk him down. And I think that she's just sort of like, you know, just an accessory in this. Shepard brings the character to life. Interestingly, but, Ultimately, I don't really care what happens to him, and just saying neither do I. Just saying that he's Data's grandpa doesn't do much to cover that gap for me. Not I, at all. I was looking at the TNG writers' bible um, for this episode uh, after shaking my head at the fact that every female character is described as extremely attractive in the bible. <laughs> I mean, but I was yeah. looking at the guidelines for scripts, and the first rule is you know write stories that involve our crew. We don't want stories about other people, and that's the first rule for Pocketbooks' submission guide as well. So. I think Pretty if, much, yeah. If Maurice Hurley is doing his job, you know, we don't even have an episode like this, or at least we have an episode that doesn't have a character basically come on and just be the star of the show for a while, suppress another character, find a way to maybe he's fighting against Data, or just you know find a way to involve our crew more. Because if the Enterprise never shows up, this guy just dies. He's in a computer, and the story is exactly the same. Pretty much. What's interesting is the ticking clock in this episode, once they realize what Graves has done, that he has uh, imposed his consciousness into the positronic matrix on top of Data's, and that in fact, because of the way in which he has done it, it is threatening to permanently suppress and overwrite and erase Data's personality, right. and that if they don't get him out of there in a you know certain specified amount of time, 
the damage could be irreversible. Data could become unrecoverable. It's interesting that this is perceived as, you know, a bad thing. This is perceived as uh, killing data when, if you look at some of the uh, proposals that were suggested for how to bring data back after Star Trek Nemesis, the notion that because his memories were all uploaded into B4, the notion that somehow this would reincarnate Data's personality, which would then overwrite the existing Matrix in B4 and Data would be reborn in B4's body, nobody stops to think, well, this is essentially saying that uh, data is going to be reincarnated by killing his developmentally challenged older brother. Yeah, it's this is murder. Troublesome. This is just it's, <laughs> it, it's troublesome because people are not thinking about these beings as sentient beings worthy of their life, uh, worthy of existence, simply for the fact that they exist. Before has every right and deserves to have every chance to exist as he is without modification without reprogramming his life is not worth less just because he doesn't function the same way data or lore does right that does not make him worth less yeah it does not make his life expendable uh, it is immoral and evil to suggest otherwise and I think that a lot of the proposals for how to bring back data by overriding B4 simply overlook this because they look at B4 and they see incomplete. They see just a device, something that didn't quite make it. I'm like, well, then how do you look at people who are maybe differently abled? Are they not quite the same? Are they expendable? We wouldn't say that of a fellow human being. How can we say that of an android? Yeah. Uh, that all checks out, I think. And I'm really worried about, uh, was it John Logan that wrote Nemesis? Yeah. yeah. Uh, about uh, his ideas about that sort of thing. Um, plus, I always wondered, okay, so the scimitar blows up. Data is pretty resilient. There aren't like chunks of him like around. There's nothing they can recover. He probably got vaporized pretty well. Yeah. But uh, if, if you're interested in seeing a, a take on the reincarnation of Data that I think is morally defensible, uh, I'm going to plug one of my books here. It's called The Persistence of Memory, mm. and it's book one of the Cold Equations trilogy. Uh-huh. And it was essentially my response to the data reincarnation story that I didn't like in the comics. And I said, I can do better than this, or at least I think I can. And I'm going to write the return of data the way I think it should have happened. Okay. And uh, one of the things that's important is that this episode was absolutely vital to that. Oh. Because this, first of all, this episode was, uh, as I said, a linking point. Uh, it's part of the linking uh fabric between TOS and things like what are little girls made of right. uh, and all that type of stuff. And uh, you know, the M five computers and all that stuff. And then the treatment of AI and androids and positronic consciousness in the 24th century. This is what author Jeff Lang used right. as the jumping off point for his novel, immortal coil yeah. and cold equations. The whole trilogy is a sequel to immortal coil. Nice. So, the uh, premise that I operated under using the schizoid man as part of my reference to show that it was possible to transfer uh, human consciousness intact into a soon type Android. And then further showing that it was possible to do so uh, with the seventh season episode inheritance by showing what had been done with Juliana Tainer. Right. I showed that Noonien Sung clearly had been keeping up on Ira Graves's work knew about this and then it raises the question of, well, then why do you think 
that Noonien Sung made all his androids look like him. Wouldn't it make sense that he too was planning to cheat death, had built androids in his own likeness? He clearly, at some point, perfected the ability to transfer human consciousness intact into a Sung-type android body so well that Juliana didn't know what she was. Right, right. Why would he go through all this if he wasn't planning to do the same for himself? Sure. So I posit, and then I went back and I rewatched the episode Brothers in season four. And although uh, we are meant to, to come away from that episode believing that Noonien Sung has died, here's what's interesting. If you go back and rewatch the episode, you never see Noonien Sung die. He does not die on screen. Right. Data never says the words, my father is dead. He never says it. He comes back to the ship. He seems somber. The captain says, the crew is very sorry for your loss. Data doesn't respond, says nothing, goes to his post, and resumes his duties. <laughs> Interesting. So there's no canon proof. Yeah, no body. No, there's no body, <laughs> no death scene, no verbal confirmation from his son. There is no proof that Noonien Sung died in right. Brothers. My <laughs> hypothesis is he sent Data away, telling Data he wanted to die alone and in peace. Data leaves. Sung then goes into a hidden chamber beneath wherever he was living on this remote planet. And he's essentially got one of those spinny tables from what are little girls made of. Sure. <laughs> and he, he, he transposes himself into a new Android body, which is even more advanced and cooler and more badass than the one he built for data. Now he's in a new immortal Android body with his consciousness intact. He goes off, has a whole series of adventures. And then when data is killed in nemesis, uh, having seen what is he thinks the last of his creations destroyed and lost, uh, but then finding out that the memories are in before, he realizes no, that that's like putting high tech software into an old machine. You're just going to hurt before. Now he realizes I need to save before by getting those memories out of him before it's too late. Mm -hmm. And B, that gives me a chance. If all of Data's memories are stored, I can build a new body and soul for Data, marry them back to his memories, and bring back my son. Okay. So he's got this brilliant plan, and I won't spoil the ending because, well, yeah, things always go wrong and don't quite work out the way you intend. Of course. But uh, what I have is essentially a story about the the reincarnate. The book one is about the reincarnation of Data, and then Data, once he is reincarnated, carries this obsessive desire that his father had to reincarnate him, and he brings it uh, full circle in the desire to resurrect his daughter. Okay. All right. I see that. Um, I have a question about positronic brains. So if Troy can sense emotion in them, could, say, Spock mind meld with a positronic brain? That's interesting. I think that the answer is yes. And the reason I say that is because Spock was able in Star Trek The Motion Picture to achieve some degree of psychic connection with V'ger, right. which was a wholly synthetic intelligence, but one that operated on higher planes of consciousness, higher energy levels, and perhaps in uh, multiple uh, extraspatial dimensions that perhaps either mimic or overlap with those used by telepathy or psionic talent. Interesting. So because I think that Spock was able to merge with, uh, meld with V'ger and read V'ger's desires to rejoin its creator, I think that it is entirely plausible that 
a powerful telepath, a, a strong psionicist, uh, such as Spock or Sarek, could try a mind meld with a posit- a being with a positronic mind. Sure. That would probably apply to Nomad as well from the original series, The Changeling. Yes. Yes, I think it, I think it would. I think especially the fact that if the positronic mind is giving off emotions that are recognizable to Troy, and when you combine that with the other canon evidence that it is possible for a mind meld to occur with a synthetic intelligence, uh, I think that inescapably the answer is yes. Yeah. Sp- Spock could mind meld with data. Neat. Well, somebody's got to write that. Uh, Thank you. It's a great idea. I may steal that. Okay, go for it. <laughs> uh, Dr. Pul- I want a percentage. Uh, Dr. Pulaski gets pulled off the team almost immediately in the episode, uh, which of course gifts us with Dr. Salar, but I'm wondering if there was something going on behind the scenes that they had to write her out for the week? Because the, the crisis she goes to confront is never mentioned again, so it could have it's easily... It's also not shown. Yeah, and it's not shown at all, um, so it easily could have been her on the planet instead of Salar. Plus, to me, and we're going back to trying to fix the episode, Pulaski and Data is always a pairing that I enjoy. I think it might have been cool if maybe Pulaski knew Graves previously. So we see her interacting with Data as Data and later interacting with Graves as Data. And maybe she is part of the episode's resolution. That would have been an interesting take as well, making better use of her. I don't know what the politics were. Very often a decision like this gets made because let's say... Pulaski is not working out. This was uh, only six episodes in, but maybe by that point they could already tell that it was going to be a rough uh, collaboration, a rough partnership working with uh, (laughs) Diana Moldauer. Maybe they were already thinking, well, you know, we had this problem in season one with, uh, you know, Beverly Crusher with Gates McFadden. Uh, if this is going to be a problem again, maybe we should set up Dr. Salar and have her on deck so that if Moldauer, you know, starts taking attitude, we can always say, well, we can always promote Salar. <laughs> We're just blowing through doctors at this point. Yeah. Just, you know, Hey, you know, if you're going to be a pain in the ass about this, uh, <laughs> you know, we've got Susie Plaxon ready to step up and take the job. So th- for all we know, this was a shot across Diana Moldauer's bow. Or maybe it was just that she had something else going on that week. Okay. Maybe it was original. For all we know, maybe it was originally written with Diana Moldauer's character, with uh, Dr. Pulaski in the mix. And maybe for some reason, she just couldn't do it. Had another commitment. Uh, you never know. I'm wondering if, if what's the uh, timeline of whether she was um, involved with L.A. Law at this point? I don't remember. I, I think later. she was. I, I think she was already done with L.A. Law oh, by okay. this point. Okay. Uh, I do like Graves's funeral scene. <laughs> That's something that I remember stuck with me uh, from when I saw the episode as a kid, uh, and Data's uh, little silly speech that he gives when he's like, "Look at look at that face." <laughs> to know him is to love him. <laughs> to love him is to know him. Yeah. That's uh, when Data's uh, Data can be very funny, and he's always funny when he's being funny. Um, unintentionally, but I, I don't like when they try to make Data do, like, bits. Uh, like at the end of this episode, when Riker's like, oh, you were uh, you were wrestling a targ in your underwear or whatever, and Data's like, did I win? It's like, that's, come on, that's too, that's too bitty. You don't get that. Well, I think it was because his delivery was too cutesy. <laughs> He's, you know, I think that if he had simply, you know, uh, heard this, processed it dryly, <laughs> right. and then just looked at him and completely dry, dead serious, just to say, did I win? Yeah, right. Okay, that would work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> n- no, no little hint of a smile, no playful banter. Just, 
did I win? Yeah, it's a little <laughs> just, too and, hot and, touch, and, uh, for me. <laughs> and, just, and just have the rest of the crew just look at him like, you don't understand what just happened, do you? Right, right. Like, but uh, I mean, there, there, there's all kinds of stuff in this episode that makes me shake my head. <laughs> for instance, okay, so the the little funeral scene that's great, except that you're going to beam him into space. Why didn't they? I know they didn't disperse his molecules because they wanted that ending image of the coffin floating in space. Right. Well, congratulations, you've just contributed a bunch of space junk in an interstellar travel lane. <laughs> this thing could a ship moving at faster than the speed of light could slam into this thing someday. I mean, right. it, the odds against it are astronomical. Sure. Yeah. But you've just put a new obstacle into play yeah. that might be a hazard to interstellar shipping. It's a mattress in the space lanes. Yeah. Why didn't you disperse it molecularly into the void? That's my first question about that. Here's the next thing. Uh, the beginning has this whole ridiculous thing like where the enterprise is called away right. to this other crisis. Yes. Yes. All right. And they have to zip into orbit <laughs> to do this thing called a near warp transport. The touch and go because, down warping. Yes. Right. The touch and go down warping because it's so, it's so critical. Time is so critical. So they, they drop out and <laughs> nobody, apparently Troy's never done this before. It's some big deal. Uh, so they drop out, they start the transport sequence. And apparently as the transport sequence is finishing, the ship warps away way and making Troy feel like, you know, she says, for a moment, I felt like I was materializing inside that wall. And Data says, for a moment, you were. And I'm like, okay, this is a technique that we never really saw again, no, I don't as think far we as did. I know. <laughs> All right. It doesn't seem to serve any particular purpose. Yes, the Enterprise was in a hurry, but was the emergency so serious that they couldn't spare literally an extra five seconds <laughs> To complete a normal 10-second transport sequence. Yeah. Was the risk, the mortal risk to the away team, really worth saving five seconds in orbit? I mean, come on. I could see if the ship dropped out if they were under fire or there was some tactical need for the ship to escape quickly before being destroyed by a hostile force. You've got to drop in, beam your team, and get the hell out before somebody can get a weapons lock. Right. Then I get it. Then this technique makes sense. You're depositing a strike team, and you're trying to evade fire, and you don't have time to put up your shields. If that's the explanation, great. But that's not what's going on no. here. <laughs> this was one of those cool ideas that some writer wanted to shoehorn into an episode, even though there was no good reason for it. Yeah. And it's I, just idiotic because it only takes 10 seconds to do a I transport yeah. sequence. And I respect them wanting to put cool scientific stuff in it. But you're right. Like the second transport is complete. They hit warp 9.6 and like they're there. They're, it's, oh, it's right. It, so it's ridiculous. And then after they've warped away, the ship is now at supposedly high warp racing to this emergency crisis at like warp nine point something and data taps his combat and hails the enterprise to let them know that they've reached the planet. Right. <laughs> okay. I, how the hell did data hail the enterprise after it warped out of orbit in almost every other episode? Once a ship warps out of the system, it's beyond the range of away team communicators and comm badges. Right. But here, Data seems to have no trouble at all raising them on a combat, even though they are warping away. This, th th these are just a couple of the things that make me shake my head and go, come on, guys, I think come you, on. You found a knit there, I think, that needs to be picked for sure. Um, 
on the bright on the bright side, they have a fun like welding sculpture of a little robot. I don't know if you noticed that, but like, where was this when they first beam down? This is the place where they do the touch and go down warping thing. Oh right, yeah. And they yeah, meet the, Graves, yeah. and he's like, "Oh, your Soong's work." On uh, against the back wall, there's this little like statue. It's about three feet high, and it looks like it's made of like scrap metal, and it looks like a little robot or a knight or something like that. And it, to me, okay. it was just like an overactive prop department. Is like this guy works on robots, right? Robots, yeah. I saw this great ah, thing. Yeah, robots. See, yeah. <laughs> I saw this great thing in a rummage sale. We'll just throw a little robot in here. Maybe he's working on that. Yeah. <laughs> and hey, of course, uh, other one other nit to pick where Data is talking with Graves, and uh, Graves is saying, "You know, look at me. You know, dying man, mourning a man who will never know death." And Data mentions his off switch and says that's kind of like death and i'm just thinking as usual and this was a, a recurring problem throughout the early seasons of tng data seems rather cavalier in his willingness to entrust near strangers with information about his off switch <laughs> no <laughs> he just seems to tell anybody who comes along by the way did i mention i have this off switch right back here right that completely turns me off. Did I mention that? Can't Picard like, oh, just come. order him to stop telling people that? Yeah, Mr. Data, please stop <laughs> telling people yeah. about the off switch. It is a tactical problem. You are a liability to the crew. <laughs> right. Knock it the f*** off. <laughs> uh, I, I do like that uh, before anybody knows exactly what's going on, they just think that Data's being a jerk. Like you get you get this scene from Picard where he's like, "Uh oh, is Data just going to be like this now? Is this somehow part of his devel development as a being? Are these the bratty teen Data years?" Right, right. Like they, like when he goes off at the uh, funeral and says he was just trying to honor uh, Ira Graves' wishes. Picard buys that, and I guess it's you know vaguely plausible. I mean, Data did behave a little oddly at times, even in the first season. Oh yeah, he was very uh, sort of. Um, inconsistent in the portrayal in the original season. The yeah, he was, season. Uh, in the first season, he was an idiosyncratic being at best. Yeah. Capable of being, at turns, dry and, you know, sometimes absurd. And having no concept of when he was doing either. So I guess maybe that's semi-plausible in that, you know, they realize he's trying to emulate human behavior. He's had this time with Graves. Perhaps Graves made requests of him that he's trying to honor um, but wow, once he starts having the emotions on the bridge of burning jealousy and starts mouthing off to the <laughs> yeah, captain, I'm like, all right, if this isn't sending up red flags, I don't know what will. Right. Yeah. Have him go visit the counselor. I mean, if that'll help. Yeah. There was one thing that I thought was pretty telling, which is the fact that the disease is named Darnay's disease, okay. uh, which is interesting because. Originally in the script, it was, uh, well, it's called Darnay's disease, and I can only assume that that's an allusion to Charles Darnay from A Tale of Two Cities, who, of course, is a lookalike sort of replacement for Sidney Carton. And oh. so they're kind of doing a thing there. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a little allusion yeah. to men who take each other's places in a story. And I think they definitely made that as a conscious choice because... Almost certainly. Originally in the script, um, it was called Varney's disease, uh, which is an entirely different thing, which would have made Graves put on a denim vest and bother his neighbor by asking, know what I mean? You know what I mean? Hey, burn. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. Replicate a window we can climb through. That's, that'll make him happy. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, well, I think we've hit just about everything we can. Do you have any uh, final thoughts about the episode? 
Uh, only that, uh, again, I, I find it valuable in that it, uh, is a jumping off point for the 24th century series for talking about the development of artificial intelligence in the Star Trek universe yeah. and about humanity's search for immortality through consciousness transfer, which I guess is part of the concept known as the, uh, singularity. Yeah. And that was, you know, part of the reason why I, I selected this episode for discussion, um, I mean, it sets the stage for all those conversations about the special nature of suing androids, positronic minds, and, you know, just whether or not they possess some ineffable quintessence of, of a soul. Uh, and I, I just think that that's a fascinating, you know, set of discussions to have and that this episode is part and parcel uh, of setting the stage for that. I think that without this episode laying some of that groundwork, some of those later episodes might have seemed to have come out of nowhere. So I think that the the groundwork that this episode represents for that subject matter in Star Trek is quite valuable. Yeah, I agree. Um, a lot of the early episodes uh, don't compare uh, favorably to later episodes, but they do help set that foundation. And I think most people would agree, um, whatever setting you're in, whatever you're trying to accomplish with the show, that when TNG is like really on, it's probably the best Trek show that's ever been on TV, or one of the best at least. And, it's right up there with DS9. Oh yeah, absolutely. And this episode is is an interesting look into what the show was like, you know, before it got there. Uh, and even though I don't consider this a very Trekky episode, I, I still enjoy the weird sci-fi ness of the concept. Yeah. Uh, body swapping or mind takeover stories are a well-worn worn trope in sci-fi and Trek. Uh, do you have a favorite body swapping story or um, movie mm. or, or book? Uh, they're, they're, they're really awkward uh, as subject matter. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you're talking about just in Star Trek uh, or you're talking about in like all of well, I think, SF or... Well, like Turnabout Intruder might disqualify Trek as a whole for... Oh, well, there there is that. I think one of the... One of the funniest treatments I ever saw of the body swap episode in science fiction was uh, on the series Farscape, where something happens and the characters all kind of get like shifted one character to the right or something. Right. And so they, they have to figure out which one of them occupies whose body. So the characters are all walking around wearing signs. Like pictures of who, themselves, yeah. <laughs> I, oh, actually, I think it's, yeah, it's either pictures of themselves or they're wearing like a little sign with a name on it or something. Yeah. But I think it's pictures of themselves. Right. So they're all wearing like little pictures of who they actually are inside. And it is absolutely hilarious uh, because it's very self-aware. Like the, the writers and the cast were very self-aware of what they were doing and the absurdity of it. And so they just took it and ran with it. And as a result, I think that that was one of the things that made Farscape one of my favorite shows for a very long time was its willingness to take these well-worn tropes and have just unbridled fun with them. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that and you stole mine because that was going to be mine. But uh, I, <laughs> I love the fact that Farscape, you know, in opposition to TNG, probably because of or to Star Trek in general, uh, wants to ask all the questions that you would never ask on Star Trek. And so the first thing that everybody does when they get into a new body is they all look down their pants, basically. <laughs> and then later on, yeah. they're like, did you? Uh, yeah, of course I did. Did, did you? Of course yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else are you going to do? Well, this exactly. is your uh, third appearance on the program, and as such, you've reached the rank of full lieutenant. I believe that you were assigned to the ship's services department previously, so I have a question. Is there a chef on board a Galaxy-class ship in the 24th century? I mean, we see a galley in Star Trek VI, but if everyone has replicators, do you even need a kitchen staff? 
you probably don't, but I think that as a matter of just uh, pride and protocol, what you would probably have is a trained chef on board whose job is to program high-quality items into the replicator, to constantly be on the lookout for new culinary possibilities, to do quality control testing on replicators to make sure that they are faithfully reproducing the recipes that have been put in. Okay. And and the ship chef would probably be responsible for uh, service of VIP events in the captain's mess and VIP events for flag level officers or diplomatic level officers. Sure. So that chef would, even if he's just one person, he would be like the head chef who is testing the uh, recipes of the sous chef and everyone else to make sure that everything's right. For instance, yeah, and it's also, there's more to being a chef than just the food that comes out of the replicator. An important part of chef work, and I say this as someone who has worked as a chef, is plate presentation. Sure. And if you're going to be presenting not only uh, the items on a single serving of a plate, but you also have to think about plate presentation when you are setting up a buffet or a serving line. Uh, You want it to be aesthetically pleasing. And in the 24th century and in a diplomatic situation, you would have to consider the aesthetic sensibilities not only of humans, but of other species in the Federation. And if you are hosting uh, non-Federation VIP guests, you would have to familiarize yourself with their aesthetic preferences, both uh, visual, olfactory, textual, uh, and uh, flavor. And you'd have to customize your presentations and buffets for them as well. So there would be an art, really, to preparing a, uh, a properly laid out buffet and service area because you also have to take into account traffic patterns. How are people going to move past the tables? Where are bottlenecks likely to occur? How do you keep the crowd moving so that people constantly have easy access to different things? Do you want more than one setup of the same thing but in different areas of the room? So, yes, I think that a Galaxy-class starship would probably employ a professional diplomatic culinary staff and would probably have at least one uh, executive chef. Well, I look forward to your new series, Star Chef. This is, uh, sounds fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. yeah. In fact, it, and they're going to solve mysteries, and it's going to turn it out. It, it'll be like the uh, the movie Under Siege, where it turns out the, the ship's oh, cook there you go. Is, is the one who always saves the day. He's a Klingon, right. right. Why does he yeah. cook? Oh, you'll find out. Yeah. 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 Even though Klingons don't like their food cooked, he cooks. Um, <laughs> mostly because his spatula doubles as a doctog. It's razor sharp, exactly. Well, Lieutenant Mack, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? They can find my website, davidmack.pro, or they can find me on Twitter, David Allen Mack, David A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K. And you can find me on Facebook at TheDavidMack. That's great. And uh, your new book, The Midnight Front, and also your discovery book, Desperate Hours, are available on Amazon and other places. Please pick up The Midnight Front. It is very important to me that this book do well. It's very important to tour that this book do well. <clears throat> but I, I seriously, I put in years of work. I, it's a labor of love that has been six, maybe close to seven years in the making. And to see it out there in the world is uh, very exciting for me. And now I'm just hoping that it finds an audience. So if you've been a fan of my work for Star Trek, uh, I would ask that you please consider supporting me on this new literary adventure and come along and please buy a copy of The Midnight Front. 
Yes, go check that out, and we'll have links to find those in the show notes. Uh, Good luck with your upcoming works, and thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having me on. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.